Hi, uh, my name is Courtney Freer. I'm a research officer here at the LSE Middle East Center, and thanks so much for joining us um, for the book launch of Salman's Legacy, which is, of course, quite timely and also quite discounted tonight. It's available for £20, um, down from its normal 35 so um, just to let you know ahead of time. Um, so tonight we, of course, have three fantastic speakers. Um, they'll speak for about 10, 15 minutes each, and then we'll open up for question and answer. So let me just uh, briefly introduce them though I'm sure you all know them already. Um, Madawi Al-Rashid is a visiting professor here at the LSE Middle East Center. She has published several articles in academic journals and edited volumes on Saudi Arabia's political development since the Arab uprisings, gender policies, and current affairs. Previously, she held positions at the Open Society Foundation, King's College, London uh, Goldsmiths, University of London, and the University of Oxford. Stefan Hertog is associate professor in comparative politics in the Department of Government, also here at LSE. His work focuses on the political economy of the Gulf states, and he's published widely on that topic. He's previously held positions at Sciences Po Paris, the University of Durham, and Princeton University. And finally, we have Michael Farquhar, who's a lecturer in Middle East politics at King's College London. His book, Circuits of Faith, Migration, Education, and the Wahhabi Mission, published in 2016, looks at Saudi state-funded Islamic missionary work in the 20th century. He's also held positions previously at the LSE and SOAS. So I guess we'll go ahead and, and get started. Um, the event is being recorded, so if you want to listen to it again later um, or send it to your friends after, that's an option. And also, if you want to tweet, the hashtag is LSE Legacy. So we get started. Uh, good evening, everybody. Um, it's a pleasure to be uh, with you uh, tonight on a very, very special night. I can assure you that the organizer, our event organizer, Sandra Sfer, who's a brilliant organizer, did not actually have an inside knowledge about the significance of the 7th of March and who's going to be in town. Uh, although we are accused that we really planned it so that it coincides with the arrival of or the visit of Mohammed bin Salman to London. Um, there are two institutions that I'd really like to thank because they were uh, behind this project that resulted in, uh, in the book. Uh, the first one was the Middle East Institute at the National University of Singapore, and the second one is the Middle East Center at LSC. Both these institutions supported the, um, the research project. Uh, uh, National University of Singapore and um, MEI uh, actually sponsored the conference that took place in Singapore at the end of 2016. And uh, later I carried it from the Far East and brought it to London to, to LSE. Very uh, warm thanks for all of those who had actually contributed to this uh, book. Uh, my final thanks are for Hearst Publisher, who are uh, superb uh, professional publishers who are very supportive, and I strongly recommend them. Um, so, uh, the book, Selman's Legacy. Uh, first, I must tell you things that are not actually written in the book. If you're going to buy the book, you'll find uh, the details. Uh, the title, let me start with the title, Selman's Legacy. This wasn't the original title of the book. Uh, but there were, uh, it was Selman's kingdom, then it became something else and something else, and at the end, we thought it's Selman's legacy. Uh, the book took longer than it sh should have, simply because uh, Selman and his son kept changing their mind. So you can imagine, I started writing uh, the introduction for the book um, after the conference in early 2017. And Mohammed bin Salman was an advisor, uh, minister of defense, 
uh, deputy crown prince. Um, but by the time I submitted the manuscript in June 2017, he became crown prince. So we had to go through the whole manuscript and change all the titles. Uh, other problems that my contributors um, had was, um, for example, the economic policies of Mohammed bin Salman. My uh, colleague um, uh, Stefan will tell you about the political economy and the changes that had been introduced by Salman and his son. But uh, Mohammed bin Salman kept changing his mind and going back on uh, his decisions. For example, freeze the employment in the public sector, cut subsidies. All this had to be changed again and again. And finally, we managed to get to this stage. So I'm not sure by the time you come to reading it, we will probably have a different um, scenario in Saudi Arabia. This is very telling because what we are experiencing in Saudi Arabia at the moment is erratic decision-making process and uh, volatile foreign policy. Uh, almost um, very, very um, offensive domestic changes that had taken place since 2015. So let me just start by telling you a little bit about the book and the introduction that brings all the, contribu the contributions in the book together. And there are 12 chapters written by um, uh, old, uh, the old guard, but also we have in the book uh, uh, a number of uh, schol young scholars who haven't been published uh, uh, before. Uh, some of them are Saudis, and they have written superb chapters on uh, Saudi Arabia uh, from the perspective of these young scholars. Um, so in Sa when we talk about Saudi Arabia, one British author, Robert Lacey, who had actually published an article yesterday or today in The Guardian, uh, described Saudi Arabia as an enigma that is offensive to some people. But um, he uh, uh, presents Saudi Arabia as an incomprehensible, uh, difficult to understand country. But I think given the uh, abundance of uh, serious academic research that had taken place ab uh, in Sa uh, about Saudi Arabia, we have a good picture. We really know quite a lot about Saudi Arabia. And only those people who don't bother to read or follow or don't want to understand think that there is a kind of Saudi exceptionalism, as if there is this country that is placed in the Arabian Peninsula that is out of time, out of history, out of its context. But if you look closely, you find that uh, quite a lot of what goes on inside Saudi Arabia is actually a, continu a continuation of what happens in the Arab world. Saudi Arabia has never been an isolated, exceptional uh, uh, polity. Uh, its political system, economy, uh, tribal structure, religious tradition, you find that there is actually quite a lot in common between Saudi Arabia and its neighbors. But we continue to think that Saudi Arabia is an enigma, an exceptional case, which it's not. So uh, in terms of the research that had taken place um, on Saudi Arabia, it, it, it falls in between two narratives. The first narrative insists that the Saudi monarchy is a resilient, savvy uh, monarchy that is uh, 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 who's uh, very, very stable. It might have some hurdles, some problems, but it will survive. And they give the example that this regime has a specific durability because of certain um, uh, uh, governance strategies. The other narrative, since the 1950s, it's been predicting the collapse or the imminent collapse of the Saudi regime. 
And some authors have actually uh, gone as far as put a date on the collapse or the, the possible collapse of the Saudi regime. So this book doesn't really tell you whether the Saudi regime is, is uh, uh, resilient, strong, here to stay forever, or it's on the verge of collapse. So my, my purpose in, in um, uh, writing uh, the book and bringing the uh, contributions together in one volume is to tell uh, the story of um, multiple domestic, regional, and international challenges. So um, these challenges are not unique to Saudi Arabia, but are common in other countries. So um, I'm not going to give you the historical background. I'm sure quite a lot of you would like to know about what is happening now, although we have some serious historical research in the book in some chapters. So what is new in Saudi Arabia? To sum it up, if you want to know what has actually changed in Saudi Arabia, it's not like women are going to go to the cinema or they're going to enter the, uh, uh, the, the football stadium uh, or uh, have participate in concerts, etc. That's going to happen. But this is not the main focus. What has really changed in Saudi Arabia is a rewriting of regime security. So each regime has its own security pillars that allows it to maintain its uh, rule over uh, the pop uh, population. So I'm going to talk about five issues that have actually changed and are cause for problem. Or in fact, they are challenges. Um, so these challenges are related to dilemmas, and there is a difference between a challenge and a dilemma. A dilemma is more profoundly uh, acute inability to balance different things or change different things. The challenge, you could face it and get over it, but the dilemmas are there, and I think some of the chapters deal with this, these dilemmas. The first one is what to do with the royal family, and what's new is... Uh, a lot of uh, scholars, uh, such as uh, one of our contributors, uh, Professor Gregory Goals, think that the cohesion of the royal family allowed it to survive. But there is a serious change now, and that is Mohammed bin Salman and King Salman have shaken that cohesion. I don't want to remind you about the Ritz-Carlton and all that, um, but this cohesion is uh, now under threat. Um, what has happened is in the process of moving the Saudi succession from its historical horizontal pattern to its current vertical pattern, um, Mohammed bin Salman and, well, the father, uh, King Salman, had to eliminate many other potential rivals. And what we have seen over the last 18 months is exactly that. And this is bound to challenge the cohesion of the Saudi uh, royal family, which had in the past uh, guaranteed a kind of survival. So it is one of those uh, regime security pillars that are being shaken today. I won't say much about the second point, and that is the economy. I'll leave this to Stefan. Uh, but um, the challenge and the dilemma is how to become a modern economy without oil, or with cheap oil, and also without undermining the welfare state, the subsidies, the benefits, and all the perks that Saudis had gotten used to. So can Saudis be taxed and remain silent? 
or what happens to a state or a regime that distributes wealth when its resources become limited? So these are the questions that perhaps Stefan could uh, tell us more about. And the third point is uh, the uh, relation, state-society relations. And this was a, a strong uh, regime security pillar as well that is currently being shaken. So Saudi relation, uh, the regime relationship with multiple constituencies in Saudi society, these constituencies are becoming very, very outspoken, and they include a whole range of people, minorities, women, Islamists, liberals, and of course, there is another constituency that now is extremely important, and that is the international community that the Saudi regime has to take account of. And this is why we have the billboards in London on uh, the, the, the images of the pictures of Mohammed bin Salman on buses and on taxis in London. So the international community has become almost like a domestic constituency that needs to be um, taken into account because the Saudi regime needs this international community for the success of certain uh, visions such as Vision 2030 or the National Transformation Program and more importantly for the security of the regime itself. Um, the fourth pillar in this uh, security um, uh, reg uh, regime that is being currently changed is the relationship between uh, the Saudi regime and the religious establishment. Um, this is a challenge and also it poses a dilemma, simply because uh, Saudi Arabia um, had probably almost 260 years of a kind of tense uh, relationship with its religious establishment. Um, it hasn't always been harmonious and what is m more interesting and threatening is that all the serious opposition to the regime has originated from this religious establishment. So yes, of course, Saudi Arabia, like other Arab countries, had uh, upheavals related to secular or nationalist politics in the 1950s and 60s, but the most threatening uh, opposition had come from this religious establishment since 1927. Uh, the more the Saudi regime tried to control the Wahhabi tradition and bureaucratized it, the more it escaped its control. And the most violent people had come from this religious establishment. Um, uh, over all sorts of policies, from relations with the West to uh, uh, the education of women. There's a spectrum of topics that the tense relationship had unfolded between the regime and its religious establishment. So what has happened is Mohammed bin Salman now is undermining that religious establishment and we wait to see what kind of reaction it will have. Uh, has he always succeeded uh, in convincing them that these changes are now important? Uh, we now as Saudis need to be moderate Muslims. And what are the consequences of this kind of relationship? But also this comes at a time when there is an increasing sectarianization in Saudi society and also radicalization. Like other Arab countries and neighboring Gulf countries, Saudi Arabia had witnessed the wrath of Al-Qaeda and then later ISIS. Um, in fact, uh, as one contributor in the chapter, uh, the ideological connection between ISIS and the Saudi religious tradition is so obvious to everybody 
despite the denial and the media hype that they had nothing to do with it. So for example, um, Bunzel uh, Cole um, writes about how, how the uh, ISIS ideologue, uh, Turki bin Ali, had been a student um, uh, of uh, Ibn Jibreen, who is a famous Saudi um, religious scholar. But let's assume that you know, uh, one goes to a university or studies under a mentor, then he becomes radical. So if we produced a radical at LSE, would they blame LSE? It's a very big question, an ambiguous relationship, but there is definitely a connection between the Saudi religious tradition and the ideology of ISIS. The last uh, challenge and the cause for uh, um, uh, a little bit of concern in Saudi Arabia is the international community and international relations. And um, Mohammed bin Salman is trying to return to a status quo ante when uh, Saudi Arabia and the US are actually um, in line in terms of their strategy policies in, in, the, in the Arab world and beyond. Uh, but that relationship had seen uh, better times uh, once we get to the Obama administration. And what Mohammed bin Salman had succeeded in doing is return to uh, winning the US, but not really the US. He has won President Donald Trump. Uh, we find that uh, from, from the chapter in the book on Saudi foreign relations that there is an increasing um, questioning in the West itself about the relationship or the uh, logic of the relationship between Western democracies and a regime like Saudi Arabia. I mean, you only need to follow the, the um, um, demonstrations in London, the media hype, the questioning. In fact, in Britain, there are two political parties who have criticized the uh, visit of Mohammed bin Salman to, um, um, to Britain. Um, it's probably only the, um, the conservatives who have welcomed him. That we've seen really strong statements from uh, British publics, from British civil society, in addition to political parties objecting to this visit. So the situation is different. Uh, probably during a previous era, not many people objected in the West to this relationship. It was a far away relationship that didn't really impinge on people's lives. But a lot had changed in terms of the interconnection, uh, the presence of a strong global human rights societies. Um, they are connected, they link uh, what happens um, in Saudi Arabia. They uh, relay the information to audiences outside the country. And this explosion in media, social media images about Saudi dissident, about Saudi intellectuals being put in prison, being lashed, um, it reaches people in London, in DC, and elsewhere. So the book looks at how this new arrangement is so different today from the previous Cold War alliance between Saudi Arabia and the United States and the purposes of that alliance at the time. So, uh, um, so but just to conclude, uh, of course, an edited volume is never complete. Uh, we managed to get uh, uh, people to discuss different kind of aspects of these, of these challenges, and you'll find that, of course, there are missing um, uh, chapters that could be in the book, but we always constrained as editors by the availability of research, by resources, by funding, etc. And um, um, there are um, 
some topics that uh, even if we wanted to include, um, there are no people uh, uh, working on them. And this is something that I would urge uh, MA students looking for PhD projects to look into. And that is, for example, um, 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 immigrants in Saudi Arabia. There is quite a lot to do about that cohort, almost 10 million people. Also, we have a new breed of Saudis, and I call them the hybrids, those who have been born in the West or lived in the West for a long time, and then they come back to Saudi Arabia. We don't know anything about them. Well, of course, we know that all Saudis are tribal, uh, glorifying their tribal origin, etc., and celebrating their genealogies. But there are a lot of hybrids in Saudi Arabia, as in uh, all societies. Saudis do mix, um, although, you know, Many people don't like this mixing. So we need a lot of those kind of poverty in Saudi Arabia is another topic that we don't have a lot of research on. So there are uh, um, ideas and suggestions for uh, PhD students to choose uh, a, a research topic in order to enrich our knowledge about this country and move away from the Saudi exceptionalism or the enigma. Thank you. This one? Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Thanks a lot, Madawi, for, for uh, setting the stage. Um, I think I should uh, thank the Royal Court and the University and Colleges Union chapter at the LSE for coordinating so closely to uh, make this event uh, possible and, and make it its timing so fortuitous. Um, we probably wouldn't be here if the, if the uh, LSE faculty union had voted uh, to strike, but it was one of the very few uh, unions that didn't meet the quorum. Uh, so we're here, and what uh, I hope to do is to uh, give a bit of context about uh, economic and institutional changes in Saudi Arabia that I engage with in the chapter in the book, uh, but I also give a little bit of running current commentary because so much has happened, and again, there are more developments from the last six to eight months that are not covered in the chapter. Um, so uh, for, for those who are familiar with any of my work, I wrote a book in 2010 about how the Saudi state apparatus came into being, what the underlying kind of political and social forces were, and how it uh, conducts economic policy. Uh, and <coughs> a lot of people meet me nowadays and say, that, oh, your book is obsolete. You've got to write a new one. We're in the age of MBS. You know, it's a completely new state. And you know, on some levels, this is true. But uh, I would also argue, and I do so in the chapter, and I do so tonight, that if you scratch below the top level of royal elites and technocracy, actually the system, the state apparatus, the way that state and business function interact with each other, the way that economic policy is implemented or is not implemented, is still very much the same as it was in the pre-MBS age. Uh, and I'll try to explain to you why uh, some of those structures are so very resilient and, and do in the short to medium term constrain a lot of the economic reform projects that have been uh, initiated in the last few years. Um, so what we've seen in Saudi Arabia, as Madawi outlined, is a very, very significant change on the elite level. So there's been a concentration of power that's... Uh, unprecedented in Saudi Arabia, at least in the oil age. You, know, you have to probably go back to King Abdulaziz to the pre-oil age to have someone uh, with such uh, unchallenged power at the, uh, within the state apparatus as uh, Mohammed bin Salman has de facto. Uh, and also the way that this power was consolidated, including the recent anti-corruption purge, really has no precedent in any Arab monarchy. You really have to look to uh, Republican regimes to look at a leader who's kind of cleaned up the elite so quickly and so ruthlessly. I mean, no, no blood uh, uh, was shed, as far as we know, in the crackdown, 
but uh, the you know the scale of operations, uh, the, the way that people were surprised and completely sidelined is really very very unprecedented. Not only in Saudi, but in, in kind of uh, the whole context of monarchical rule in the Arab world. So it's a really new era on the elite level, and the very high concentration of power uh, is, in many ways. Uh, well, at least to some extent, a necessary condition for getting some necessary economic reforms done. Uh, but it is not a sufficient condition. So uh, I think it's, it's one of the things that probably, to some extent, needed to happen to broach, uh, to, to tackle very difficult fiscal reforms, uh, you know, to uh, attack the religious establishment on you know, some regards, uh, on some kind of uh, veto plays that they engaged in that also affected uh, the economy. Uh, but it, it hasn't been sufficient to uh, turn the system around. I'll try to explain to you what the kind of structural forces are that, that this uh, very, very centralized uh, power center still has to grapple with and will have to grapple with for, for, for decades to come, quite likely. So what we've seen so far economically is that um, the economy has actually flatlined since 2015, and this, this was perfectly predictable. You know, it's, uh, in a sense, it's no one's fault because uh, – on the one hand, you've got very low oil prices, so there was a fiscal adjustment that had to happen, at least on the expenditure side, uh, that there had to be cuts. Um, but there's also been a recession because of the very rapid pace and in the eyes of the local business class, the unpredictability of economic policy. So if you talk to people privately, if you talk to some of the members of the big merchant families, um, the more reasonable ones will say that, well, we understand that you know, we have to tighten our belt and we don't have the fiscal resources that we had, had in the age of uh, oil at $100 per barrel. But we feel that there's not enough co uh, communication, there's not enough coordination. There are new policy initiatives every week that we're kind of ambushed by, that we're surprised by. A lot of those things impact us directly, and we find that the government has, be quite, has become quite unpredictable. Uh, and uh, it also often has to backpedal and then kind of climb down from announcements and policies that are uh, that are officially communicated and then are not acted on, are officially withdrawn, like, uh, for example, the cutting of the public sector allowance cuts that happened in September 2016. That was subsequently reversed because it led to a consumer recession and, and a lot of protests both, both from households and from businesses on, on social media and elsewhere, so it was reversed and the allowances were retroactively reinstated. And it's that kind of back and forth that has made the environment quite unpredictable uh, for economic actors. And that has led to, to a very strong decline of private capital formation. So there's not much private investment going on in Saudi Arabia nowadays. Now, it might just be the new leadership uh, kind of feeling its feet, and you know, that there's probably a rather steep learning curve, and uh, you know, future adjustment might be more gradual and more realistic. But for the time being, people are, a lot of economic actors are spooked, and that does include uh, a lot of the local merchant elites who've got friends or relatives who were taken into the Ritz. You know, that was something that they thought of as absolutely unprecedented. You know, when people were invited to go to see the king, uh, to come to the Ritz, no one anticipated that there would be a crackdown like this. Uh, so in, in that sense, it was actually quite easy to transact because you know, no one thought they would have to ever prepare for something like this or resist any, anything like this. Uh, but now that the, the Ritz process is winding down, there's a strong memory uh, among a lot of the people who were involved and kind of the fear that could something like this recur, you know, even if not on that scale, could there be individual kind of investigations? There hasn't been something like an amnesty. So there, there's, there's a kind of 
uh, uncertainty over private property rights and the ability of private business to operate that, that, that didn't exist before, at least for the kind of elite business that thought they were protected. Which is not to say that uh, most of the people in the Ritz didn't do something that they could be fingered for and that there weren't corrupt transactions, but it's uh, the way it was transacted, kind of the, the um, limited or, or absent transparency, um, and the fact that there are a lot of people out there still who still you know, have problematic histories in one way or the other who constitute the bulk of the business class uh, and, and they just don't know whether this will catch up with them at some point. Uh, so, so there's this uncertainty both through the corruption crackdown and through generally a very high pace of policy making where you have, for example, the National Transformation Program being announced in uh, early summer 2016 with 500 something initiatives. Uh, it was unclear how exactly that was put together, what the priorities were, what the kind of timescale would be, what the content of the individual initiatives would be. It wasn't very clearly communicated. And then it turns out that actually of the funds that were allocated for the, for the National Transformation Program, uh, less than a tenth uh, in the first year of the program was spent because the bureaucracy just did not have the delivery capacity to actually transact all of that. Uh, and you know, th that is the other, I think, key constraint that the new leadership has inherited from the old system. It's a very, very large bureaucracy, but it's uh, a very fragmented and very slow-moving and very unaccountable one. And if you go like two, three levels below the top tier in the state apparatus, it's very much still the same procedures, the same people, the same attitudes, and it's very, very hard to kind of turn this ship of three and a half million public sector employees around very quickly. So I think that's been... Um, kind of wildly optimistic estimates of how quickly different reforms and policies can be delivered through that old apparatus, which in its essence, in large parts, is uh, a, a, a welfare or wealth-sharing machinery. Right? Historically, there was a, an informal guarantee to provide a government job to every adult Saudi, at least male Saudis. Females were usually uh, kind of um, corralled into the education health sector where, where there weren't uh, enough jobs for them. But implicitly for many decades, a job guarantee for male Saudis. Uh, and as a result of this, you've got very excessive overemployment in the public sector, uh, a lot of people in the wrong position, and a lot of people who are unaccountable, and who in some cases uh, implicitly or even explicitly think that their public job is part of uh, you know, the, the oil wealth that should be shared with the population you know, rather than uh, a job with no real performance and accountability. And you know, again, that's something that's uh, grown over decades and that I've written about uh, quite a bit in my book, uh, and that'll be difficult to turn around because there are ingrained expectations. Uh, Two-thirds of Saudis in employment are employed in government. So if you meet a random Saudi who has a job, the odds of that person being in government employment rather than uh, private employment are 20 times higher than in non-oil countries. So a huge dependence of uh, households on government employment and huge overemployment in the public sector that kind of bogs down policy implementation, certainly has bogged down the kind of ra rap rapid avalanche of policy initiatives that have come out since 2016. Um, so there have been some uh, kind of uh, signs of learning. So in regards to fiscal adjustment, the schedule has been made more realistic. Now the government doesn't aim at a balanced budget by 2020 anymore, which would kind of... Uh, yank Saudi Arabia into a deep recession. It's now being pushed back to 2023. The adjustment is still going to be difficult. So and at current oil prices and at the projected spending and taxation levels, there still won't be much economic growth by 2023 just because there, there will be austerity. Uh, but it's, it's more feasible. Uh, but then there's also other initiatives like Neom, the new city in the desert, uh, which again suggests that you know, perhaps there's, there's an overestimation of the delivery capacity of that apparatus that the new leadership has, uh, has inherited. Um, 
some of the challenges, so the fact that business has become quite skeptical, is, is spooked by what has happened, doesn't know whether to take government pronouncement at face value, uh, the fact that households, although there's probably a majority that's uh, in favor of the social reforms that have happened, which are very significant, households are worried about the labor market situation, they're worried about a decline in real incomes because of the VAT, because of energy price increases, because of talk about cuts in, in public sector uh, allowances. There's a realization that there are those concerns, and, and uh, I, I know that parts of the technocracy are thinking about how to get buy-in and how to communicate with those constituencies. But it's something that's happening almost three years after the fact, so, so some of the damage has been done. And it'll be interesting to see uh, to which extent uh, you know, there will be policy learning and you know, more outreach and coordination, or whether we'll have more of the same of kind of very rapid announcements and numerous new initiatives that the system has uh, trouble digesting. Um, Fiscal policy is also the one area where the regime actually has been the most sensitive to its social constituencies. Uh, generally, the story has been that the new leadership has a very high level of policy autonomy, so it can just ram through all kinds of decisions as it wants, uh, disregarding other elite interests, you know, for good or for bad, the religious establishment, the rest of the ruling family, uh, business elites. A lot of decisions have been taken, if not always implemented, that, that are not in the interest, that are often directly against the interests of those constituencies. Uh, the leadership has been much more cautious with uh, the broader population, or with the broader citizenry, not, not the expatriates, uh, and a lot of decisions that would have hurt households were actually backpedaled, were reversed, to the point that nowadays a lot of people discount fiscal policy statements because they think that they'll, they'll be backpedaling, there'll be post hoc adjustment anyway, which was, for example, the case with the, two th the budget announcement for 2018 that came out in December, announcement of a huge expansionary budget, almost no market reaction to it because the sentiment was, yeah, well, might be different in a week, it might not be implementable, it's not clear the government can spend so much. Um, and in, fisc in the fiscal area, I think we've seen a, a sensitivity of the leadership to uh, the economic interests of households. So I think this is the one area where the regime feels less autonomous, where it feels that it has to cater to a particular constituency, which is why the public allowance cuts were reversed, and then the, the cuts were even paid retroactively after MBS became crown prince in June last year, which is why um, when there was uh, social media protests about uh, the new VAT and expat levy and the higher energy prices in January, the Royal Court scrambled, put together a 50 billion Saudi real uh, patronage package, largely consisting of uh, a temporary salary increase in the public sector. Uh, so that there's a sensitivity there. And I think what we have is, is um, a regime that's become much more populous, so that disregards old elites much more and uh, wants to cut through straight to the population, talk directly to the population in a, in, in a way that we know from, uh, from populist uh, regimes all around the world. The, I think the same is also reflected in the, the foreign policy, which has become much more nationalist. And in some regards, I think this direct outreach, particularly to younger Saudis, is working. In other regards, you know, economically, it hasn't been working so well because the labor market has been terrible for, for, for young job seekers. Um, so... Where does, that, uh, where does that leave us going forward? I think the social contract that's embedded in mass government employment will continue to constrain the system for quite a while. So there hasn't been, I think, very much systematic thinking about how to get from wealth sharing through public employment to some other kind of less distortive, more inclusionary welfare system. So there's been some talk by uh, some economists about moving to a universal basic income instead of 
uh, public sector jobs or uh, setting up modern welfare, a kind of means-tested uh, uh, generalized minimal income schemes or something like that. But uh, so far, the public sector employment has been frozen, so very few people have been hired since 2015, but there hasn't been any attempt at making larger-scale redundancies or, or shrinking the sector, which is something that has to happen in the long run, both because of the, the very, very high fiscal costs and because it has distorted labor markets very deeply. Uh, so as long as government is sort of a, a wealth distribution machinery, I think there will be constraints on the capability of the bureaucracy, the capability to deliver, the accountability of bureaucracy, and there'll also be fiscal constraints. Already right now, government salaries account for about half of the total budget, which is at, like at the very, very top in international comparison. Most other countries spend 20, 30 percent of their budget on uh, on the public sector. Now, I think this is something that you know, can be tackled, that can be turned around, but it's a secular task. You know, it's not a task of uh, a two or three year program or a five year development plan. It's something that, that requires a decade, uh, uh, a multi-decade, almost a secular strategy of how to re-engineer the whole wealth distribution system in a way that, that uh, makes it more inclusive and less distortionary. And um, I know there's a bit of discussion about that. I, I, I don't think there's been, there's a real recipe uh, about this yet which is why I think that in the short to medium run, uh, there's going to be a lot of initiatives, a lot of small changes, you know, things like the new bankruptcy law and capital market reforms that allow some foreign investors in, partial privatizations. <coughs> I'm not sure that this will amount in the short to medium run to kind of the, the structural transformation that the regime is really looking for. As long as the economy remains very deeply dependent on government, on government spending and government generated demand, which is the situation nowadays. Now you could put the smartest technocrat in the world, you could put Lee Kuan Yew, uh, you could revive Lee Kuan Yew, resuscitate him, put him in charge of Saudi Arabia, and it would still be a very, very tough challenge, and the going would be difficult for probably a few decades. So you know, the, the structural challenges, in my view, are very deep. I think I'll, I'll end on that note. Thank you. So first of all, I'll start by saying a big thank you to Madawi for organising this event and for being the driving force behind this um, really unique book that we're here to discuss today. I'm going to use my 10 minutes to uh, address the question of religion, and especially the ways in which Mohammed bin Salman has sought to position himself and has sought to position Saudi Arabia um, under his de facto rule um, as a force for the promotion of moderate Islam. Um, and so I'm not going to go into a great deal of detail about my chapter in the book, but what I would like to do is to um, say a bit about how I think the synthetic picture that you get from reading various chapters in this book um, helps to give us some ways of thinking about um, the kinds of dynamics that lurk behind that kind of rhetoric. And as with all of the issues that we're discussing today, the, the timing um, for this as well is convenient. Um, so just this week ahead of his visit to the UK, um, we've seen Mohammed bin Salman again using a press interview um, this time with The Telegraph, to declare his professed ambition to promote moderate Islam within Saudi Arabia, um, and framing this as a step towards um, helping to defeat extremism elsewhere in the world. And of course, this builds on a narrative that Mohammed bin Salman has been pushing for a while now. Um, so for several months, he's been speaking about guiding Saudi Arabia towards um, what he's framing as a return to moderate Islam. Um, and the idea here is that Wahhabism at some point in the past was, a, was kind of a more or less tolerant ecumenical um, form of religion, but he claims that the Iranian revolution in 1979 um, played a really crucial role in radicalizing religious discourse in Saudi Arabia. So he's 
suggesting um, that this kind of this goal of moderation really just amounts to, and this is a slightly adapted quotation, but it amounts to simply reverting to what we were before, a country of moderate Islam open to the world and to all religions. And that kind of rhetoric, of course, also sits alongside various developments that we've seen within Saudi Arabia um, recently. So things like um, directives in 2016, which were supposed to limit the powers of the Commission for the Promotion of Virtue and the Prevention of Vice, um, so the body that polices public morality and religious observance, um, also moves to ostensibly scale back some social restrictions, which for a long time have been framed in terms of religious norms, um, so things like the ban on women driving. And these kinds of developments um, have been presented as steps towards the moderation of religion and its role in public life. And I think, I mean, it's far too early um, to say with any kind of confidence what all of this means for the longer term, um, but we can certainly use historical experience and we can use the kinds of analysis that are available in this book um, to, to, to consider the kinds of dynamics that are at stake here. And the most fundamental point to make, of course, is that the idea of Wahhabism as having been historically tolerant um, and ecumenical, um, the idea of this kind of prelapsarian religious innocence um, in Saudi Arabia prior to the radicalizing impact of the Iranian Revolution, of course, this is a convenient fiction. But several of the chapters in this book help to show that and help to kind of dig down into that um, issue and the historical dynamics behind that. Um, so my own chapter in the book um, explores the complexity of religious identity and community amongst Salafis both within and beyond Saudi Arabia. And it does that partly by exploring how um, Salafism in general, including Wahhabism as, as one kind of Salafism, can at any given time lend itself to a whole variety of, of views on social and political issues. So Wahhabism and Salafism more generally can be used to justify political quietism, um, or it can be used to justify political violence. Um, it can be used to justify a very exclusivist attitude um, towards other Muslims or, or members of other religions or, or, or none, um, or it can be used um, potentially to justify relatively tolerant positions on these issues. And the point here is that Wahhabism and Salafism more generally um, has always been a, a dynamic and politically diverse phenomenon. This is something that has come out in, in some of Madawi's past work as well. Um, and the kind of story that Mohammed bin Salman is telling us, which is built around these really kind of binary transformations, the shift from moderation to extremism and back to moderation again, um, really fails to account for that. Secondly, um, the decision by Mohammed bin Salman to emphasize this idea of a return to moderate Islam at this point in time is, is obviously a matter of political expediency. Um, part of the backdrop to that being the rise of Islamic State in um, Iraq and Syria. And this book includes a really fascinating chapter by Nadav Samin exploring um, popular reactions, um, grassroots reactions amongst ordinary Saudis to attacks <coughs> in Saudi Arabia um, in recent years that have been claimed by Islamic State. But part of the response of the Saudi regime itself has been to deny that ISIS um, has any kind of doctrinal connections with Wahhabism. And that's obviously a key step then in, in building the argument that Saudi Arabia can benefit Western powers um, by becoming a kind of a beacon of moderate Islam that can, that can help to um, undermine ISIS ideology. But again, the reality is, is far more complex than that. Um, and as Madawi said at the beginning, um, Cole Bunzel in this book um, has a really excellent chapter 
where he shows um, how scholars affiliated with ISIS have in fact taken inspiration from the Wahhabi tradition um, and explores how they've found ideas and resources in the Wahhabi tradition, um, in texts and ideas within that tradition to help to support their own positions. So that's not to suggest that ISIS ideology and Wahhabism are the same thing, that they're one and the same thing, um, but it's certainly the case that these are two really complex, evolving bodies of thought which do overlap and intersect with each other um, in important ways. And then finally, of course, the, the use of the language of moderation um, by Mohammed bin Salman is, is problematic from the point of view of the meaning of the term moderate itself. So it's not only that um, this term is, is very vague and that it's very loaded, um, but the important point is that from the perspective of the Saudi regime, um, terms like moderate um, historically have tended to designate discourses and actors that support the regime or that are politically useful to the regime in one way or another. So Andrew Hammond's chapter in this book helps to show how the Saudi regime has been promoting Wahhabism abroad since um, the 1960s, and he makes the point that they were doing that, again, out of um, political expediency, um, partly because it was seen as a useful way of distracting um, Saudi scholars and, and religious actors from issues at home in Saudi Arabia um, and directing their attention abroad. And in my own research, um, not in this book but elsewhere, um, I've shown that the kinds of discourses that were being promoted abroad through these kinds of institutions um, well before the Iranian Revolution um, were, were far from being ecumenical and far from being kind of open to um, other religions and, and open to the world. At that time, in the context of the Cold War, um, all of this, of course, was being done with the approval of Western powers because Saudi religious influence um, across the Middle East and elsewhere was seen as being a, a useful corrective, uh, a way of combating communist influence. So there's, again, a direct parallel there um, with the ways in which Mohammed bin Salman is trying to win international backing today, partly by claiming that Saudi religious influence can help to combat the ideological influence of ISIS in, in this moment in history. A similar dynamic, of course, continued into the 1980s um, with the Saudi regime lending its backing to those who were traveling to Afghanistan to fight the Soviets at that time. And if we're going to use the language of moderation and, and radicalism, then these people might well be identified as radicals um, but from the perspective of the Saudi regime and the U.S. at the time, they were, they were the right kind of radicals. Um, and we all know how that panned out. But that same kind of realpolitik also um, continues to shape dynamics within Saudi Arabia today. Um, so before and after the Arab uprisings in 2011, there were some Islamist activists in Saudi Arabia who were seeking to build arguments in favor of constitutional monarchy um, and in favor of electoral politics. And if the notion of moderate Islamism has any real meaning, um, then those kinds of steps look just like the kinds of moves uh, that we might think are, are heading in that direction towards kind of moderation. But of course, these activists were viewed as um, threats by the Saudi regime, um, and for that reason, they've been harshly repressed. And one example of that recently has been Salman al-Awda, um, so this very high-profile Saudi Islamist who um, supported the idea of popular resistance to oppression after 2011, who's argued in favor of certain kinds of democratic reforms, social reforms, um, who was then jailed in September, seemingly for refusing to back the blockade of Qatar. So again, what fundamentally matters here is not some distinction between extremism and moderation, um, but rather which actors are viewed as politically useful to the Saudi regime and which are viewed as threats to its interests. 
And all the while, you have the Saudi regime continuing to shut down debates about religion and politics, which might present a challenge to its rule, and that includes debates about questions about how religion relates to questions of constitutional democracy, elections, popular sovereignty, um, and so on. So in all of these kinds of ways, um, it's definitely important to be approaching these claims by Mohammed bin Salman about the question of moderate Islam with a great deal of caution, um, rather than the, the kind of credulous um, applause which, with which they've been met in some recent press coverage. Um, and this book, I think, helps us to go a long way towards building that kind of a, a critical um, attitude. Well, that's great, fantastic. We covered a lot of ground there. And I guess now we'll open it up to questions from the audience. I think I'll take three at a time. If you wait for the microphone to come to you, that'll be helpful for recording. And just a brief, concise question, not an exposition on your PhD research um, would be useful. So, uh, yes. Hi, uh, thank you very much for that expose. Uh, my question is on Saudi financial diplomacy, less so about Egypt, but more my specific interests are in Tunisia and Oman, so which both have quite severe fiscal problems, um, especially in the medium term. So has this changed and, you know, the attitude in the last few years or, you know, during, through this change uh, with uh, Mohammed bin Salman, and what would the quid pro quo be for these countries to receive more Saudi financial aid, and also how it plays in with the Qatar dispute? Let's see, uh, another question. Um, what impact, if any, are you anticipating from the Aramco IPO? Do you think that it could have any impact on the internal uh, bureaucracy? Um, and if so, could that spread to other areas? You mentioned quite a bloated bureaucracy. Um, could this have any impact? I'll take one more. Uh, yes. Hi, uh, so my question is um, about Saudi's uh, involvement meddling in the country. So how is uh, the war in Yemen being perceived locally, so internally within Saudi? Yes. Uh, great. Um, who wants to start? <laughs> Stefan, you had a few. Um, yeah, on, on the financial diplomacy, um, uh, obviously there's, there's not uh, a huge amount of love lost between uh, the Saudi leadership and, and the current Tunisian government. Uh, Qatar has much more of a stake in you know, maintaining uh, a struggling government that, that involves uh, a movement that has roots in the Muslim Brotherhood. I mean, the, the, the Emirates are more kind of rigid on that, but, but Saudi also isn't particularly sympathetic. Um, and also, it's the only case uh, of a so far semi-successful transition towards democracy, which is not you know, the, the, the Saudi agenda across the region. Um, regarding Oman, uh, there's not a huge amount of involvement beyond the, the package that was issued uh, in the course of the, the Arab uprisings in 2011. Uh, I think there could be a bidding war at some point because Oman is heading for a fiscal crisis. It's done very little to adjust its budget, uh, its uh, tax system. It's got a very high break-even oil price. It's running down its reserves, so there could be a forced devaluation of the Omani real. Uh, there could be a socioeconomic crisis. It could combine with a, with a succession crisis because the, the sultan doesn't, hasn't reared any obvious successor. It's a one-man uh, rule, different from the historical kind of ruling pattern in all the other GCC monarchies. 
Um, I, I once asked uh, the Minister of State for Foreign Affairs of Oman uh, whether uh, they would be willing to consider you know, some constraints on their foreign policy independence in return for uh, a generous uh, economic cooperation agreement with, uh, with some of their neighbors. And he didn't say no. Uh, I think the, the, the uh, actor that would have the strongest need for that would be Qatar. So they might be willing to pay more, and they're also slightly closer to the Omani position in the region in terms of you know, cooperating with, uh, with Iran and um, uh, not being part of the kind of very rigid uh, anti-Iranian, anti-Muslim brotherhood axis that you have on the Saudi and Emirati side. Uh, so you know, th there could be a, a deal like this at some point, I, I don't know, but there might also be a bidding war and you know, there might be a counteroffer from Saudi, and particularly uh, even most of the Emirates. I mean, they have more uh, fiscal firepower, they have more money in the kitty and a more immediate need even to control Oman because of the shared, uh, the, the shared border and uh, the very strong cross-border relations. On Aramco, uh, if the I IPO happens, I think like almost anything else happening in Aramco, it will have fairly little direct impact because Aramco is a state within a state. Uh, you know, it's really run separately from the rest of the state apparatus in many regards. It'll have a huge uh, impact on the financial market, on international financial markets also. I don't think it'll be a paradigm change for the rest of government because the rest of government has always functioned very differently from Aramco. You know, Aramco has always been uh, almost on a different planet and it, it'll just be a continuation of that. I mean, the, the Yemen uh, question, I mean, I do talk about it in the introduction. Um, and um, it is um, uh, this shift um, uh, in Saudi policy towards Yemen. Uh, Saudi Arabia had always interfered in Yemen since the 1930s. And um, the um, interference took multiple forms, subsidies to tribal chiefs or uh, personalities in Yemen. Uh, uh, and, and the, the so obvious way of dealing with Yemen throughout these years is the Saudis prefer to deal with the tribal structure of Yemen rather than with its civil society until very, very late um, in terms of dealing with political parties and other civil society groups. But um, how was the um, um, war perceived in Saudi Arabia? Um, I think, uh, in a way, Saudi Arabia has shifted with, with the Salman from um, sort of uh, endorsing this religious nationalism of the Wahhabi tradition, that we're all Saudis, we practice religion in a particular way. We, it, it was the glue that uh, um, held Saudi Arabia together, uh, at least at the level of rhetoric, although in reality it was so divisive and it ex excluded so many groups from this religious nationalist framework. And the, the King Salman has moved in the war of, uh, uh, in Yemen to a kind of militarized nationalism. And the, there is a very interesting chapter in the, in the book by Noura Daeji on how women were enlisted in the war in Yemen. And um, so a, a, a Saudi woman journalist was taken to, to the battle and uh, uh, dressed in military um, uh, attire and sort of brandishing uh, a, a gun. So that was used um, in a way to bring out this sort of a new form of nationalism that is defined and constructed in the context of the war um, in Yemen. And um, the war cannot be debated in, in Saudi Arabia openly in the public sphere. Um, recently in September, and uh, there was a journalist who just wrote an article criticizing the war and the fact that it 
really it is time to start uh, a negotiation and find a, a political solution, and he was put in prison. So uh, it is seen in, uh, uh, if we want to monitor how it is discussed, if you look at the Saudi press and the official statement, it is like a matter of life and death because we're fighting the Houthis who are uh, uh, clients of Iran and we are pushing the Iranian influence from the Arabian Peninsula. But, and there is no public debate about the war. So um, th th I hope I answered your question about um, how it is seen in, in, uh, inside Saudi Arabia. Uh, thanks very much for a very wonderful presentation. Uh, quite naturally, my questions are for Stefan. Um, th the first question uh, is <laughs> the factors of production of kept Saudi competitive over, over the sort of past decades have been cheap labor and cheap energy. Um, if those factors are, are not so cheap anymore, and you marry that with uh, heightened political risk, if you were sitting in the Minister of Economy or Finance, what would be your value proposition to, to foreign investors? Uh, the second question is, um, I think, on one of my favorite subjects when it comes to Saudi. Um, you mentioned the social contract, and of course central to that is energy subsidies or opportunity costs or whatever you want to call them. Um, the citizens account program is important, um, but as we've seen across the way in Iran, if the real depreciation of the real were to come in or inflation, uh, or inflation were to heighten, of course, um, those payouts wouldn't be so um, so so helpful. Um, and married with that uh, is energy-intensive industries. Um, of course, there are all of those sorts of potential strategies for energy-intensive industries in terms of substitution and busting on costs and so on and so forth. But if those um, if those options aren't available, uh, what happens to those uh, uh, energy-intensive industries, some which are listed, for example, SABIC? Thank you. Hi, a question for Madawi. What happens to the National Guard now? Um, is it subsumed back into, or fully now, into the wider security forces, or does it continue to have its sort of independent structure? Thank you. Thank you. My question is also for uh, Madawi. Uh, to what extent did the Arab Spring um, lead to or exacerbated the uh, Qatar-Saudi relations? On the National Guard, I think it's just been um, like two months since the change. Um, and I think at the moment, we, there were no announcement about changing the National Guard or incorporating in it in other uh, military structures. Um, but what is so obvious is that the, the commander of the National Guard now is, is not, is doesn't have the same uh, presence, uh, background like Mit'ab bin Abdullah. And therefore, it would be a very long time before he could actually emerge as, as a military commander. Um, it's simply, uh, he, he comes from a very minor branch, distant branch, and uh, he, he doesn't have a claim to the throne. It would be like a, a very long process before he can actually uh, threaten Mohammed bin Salman. On the Arab Spring and how that um, <coughs> exasperated the Qatari-Saudi relations, I think the, the Qatari-Saudi relation 
is very, very complex, and it's a very old uh, um, conflict. It's, it, it didn't really have um, a direct relationship to the Arab uprising. Um, it started in the 90s, um, and uh, it continued under the table, but it erupted um, during several episodes, so 2008, 2009, 2014, and then the recent episode. And um, I think um, one has to look at this conflict in, in different contexts. Uh, Qatar is a small country that Saudi Arabia actually doesn't respect. I mean, if you look at the discourse uh, that is used by Adil al-Jaber, the foreign minister, or Mohammed bin Salman, it's like dismissed, like this small country. Even Turkey and Faisal, who was ambassador in Britain, thought like, you know, there are 300,000 uh, people, we could put them in a neighborhood in Riyadh. So there is this kind of <laughs> uh, superiority complex. Uh, and also the, the Saudis try to sort of promote a kind of... Um, um, deprive Qatar of any kind of genealogical significance. And to go back to the tribal configuration in, in this part of the world, um, when the conflict erupted, the al-Sheikh, the religious establishment, were very supportive by, uh, to the Saudi regime in its uh, conflict with Qatar by saying that the Emir of Qatar is not a member of us, uh, Bani Tamim, the tribe of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab. So denying him that genealogical uh, um, uh, significance and importance. Uh, but Qatar has uh, decided to take a different uh, position on so many different issues. One of them is the Arab uprising. But um, also uh, uh, there is a kind of uh, fear that um, it can be uh, swallowed up again by Big Brother Saudi Arabia. Uh, if you look at the Gulf, Bahrain and uh, um, Oman are extremely have serious economic problems, and they are living on subsidies from Saudi Arabia and the other wealthy Emirates, United Arab Emirates. Kuwait has become more sort of sidelined, and it is trying to reinvent itself as a mediating power in the Gulf. Then you have Saudi Arabia and the UAE, and they both have a, a, a big sort of purchasing power that is only comparable to Qatar. So Qatar actually has uh, quite a lot of money that it can use to um, um, undermine this kind of big brother relationship. Uh, but I think all of these small countries are uh, pretty insecure. They, there is a feeling that they are sandwiched between Saudi Arabia on one side and Iran on the other side. And they're trying their best to play the game, how to survive, how to maintain sovereignty and independence with these two big powers um, 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 from uh, both sides. And therefore, uh, the Arab Spring uh, was there. It had nothing to do with Qatar. Qatar didn't start it. Uh, Qatar reported it, in, in, uh, uh, and also not all of the hotspots of the Arab Spring were reported by the Qatari press in favorable um, uh, terms. So, for example, in Bahrain, there were moments when the Qataris decided that this wasn't a, a, a pro-democracy movement and it was a sectarian, Iranian-backed uh, uprising. Um, and th th there was always this tension, uh, which uh, Arab uprising to support, which one not to support, which one to undermine. 
And the same thing applies to Saudi Arabia. I mean, Saudi Arabia presented itself as a pro-democracy uh, country uh, in Syria, for example. And uh, uh, in Tunisia and Egypt, it, it objected to that. In, in Bahrain as well. So the Arab Spring was uh, bound to happen at one point, and in fact, we probably are entering a second phase of the, of the Arab uprising because nothing has changed. In fact, the situation has worsened in terms of unemployment across the Arab world, in terms of uh, repression uh, in Egypt and in, in, in Saudi Arabia as well, in the UAE, which is not a country we associate with an iron fist. Um, and, and therefore, there is widespread um, uh, repression uh, widespread economic upheavals that are not going to be resolved <coughs> in the near future. So the Saudi-Qatari relationship is, uh, is um, and the conflict is deeper than the Arab uprising, I think. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Adel. Uh, it's, it's true that uh, to the extent that there are non-energy uh, exports, they're, they're based on cheap energies, largely uh, heavy industry goods. And uh, even cheap labor actually isn't a comparative advantage because there are no labor competitive, there are no labor intensive exports. So the only kind of export diversification that has that has happened has happened on the back of cheap uh, of cheap energy. And the labor that's imported from the rest of the world is cheap by our standards, but it's not as cheap as if you employ, the, uh, employ those people back home in India or uh, the Philippines or Bangladesh. So, so a pure kind of cost competitiveness strategy is actually not going to work because expatriate employment actually. Uh, is a bit more expensive. You got to fly the people over. You got to pay them a premium for leaving their family behind and all that. Um, so I don't think there's there's an easy short-term recipe for that. Uh, you, one thing you have to do is obviously to increase the productivity of Saudi labor. So you got to do something about skills formation, giving the right incentives. Again, which is a secular task. You know, it takes a long time reforming the education system. You got to give people the right signal making absolutely clear that there is no government employment guarantee anymore, that this will not be revised when the next political crisis happens. So I think that would be useful. Uh, and then you could think about ways to provide minimal welfare that uh, allow people to be wage competitive with foreigners without being poor. So if you have a, wa a permanent wage subsidy system or universal basic income, then Saudis could have that as a kind of basic entitlement and could top that up with private sector wages that wouldn't have to be particularly generous for the total income to be kind of socially acceptable. So you could, you could experiment with that. And otherwise, th there's no kind of obvious path of how to diversify because no country with Saudi Arabia's structural features has ever diversified in, uh, in human history. So you know, if that happens, it's a, it's a first ever experiment. Um, I think you just have to experiment with very, very many different forms of production. You know, do a lot of venture capital stuff, do kind of Danny Roderick style. Uh, subsidization of discovery and trying, you know, perhaps you know, salmon farming works or it doesn't work. Uh, perhaps you can push into downstream manufacturing uh, in, in uh, you know, high-tech uh, chemicals and plastics. Perhaps you can't. You just got to try and, and see what sticks. Uh, I, th I think you know that, that there's you can't you don't know where you're going to be in 20 or 30 years. You know, if, if anyone tells you I got a plan, you know, Saudi Arabia is going to be the biggest car manufacturer in the region in 20 years. No one knows. You know, no one knows whether it's feasible. You've got to kind of experiment in a systematic fashion. Um, uh, regarding the, the tariffs for the energy-dependent industries, uh, they've been kicked down, the, the, those tariff reforms have been kicked down the road uh, more systematically even than the other energy tariff reforms, exactly because of the danger to Saabek, also to the large agro-industry that's very dependent on water and cheap electricity, you know, keeping the air conditioners on, on for the cows, 
using a thousand liters of water for a liter of milk, all that is very kind of input intensive. And I think some of that will be grandfathered. You know, some of those tariffs will never go to what are considered international levels. There'll be some squeeze, but they probably won't go above, you know, whatever, two dollars per million British thermal units or so for, for natural gas. Um, uh, but it'll give some incentive perhaps to go into more technology intensive manufacturing because it's not so easy anymore to print money by just doing very basic energy intensive production. Um, on on the, the, the National Guard and also the Minister of Interior, I think uh, the, the bigger story that I told you about before holds there too. You know, the, the top level has changed, but go one level down and it's still the same personnel. Uh, you know, the guy in charge of domestic security at the MOI, Huberini, he's still there, he's still running the show. That will be replaced gradually, but it takes a lot of time. You need a deep bench, and the leadership doesn't nece necessarily have that. So, you know, on the, on the, on the lower level, uh, it's still a fairly kind of autonomous agency in that sense. Mike, do you have another question? I think my questions have been dealt with quite efficiently. Uh, my question is about travel to Saudi Arabia. One of the big changes that MBS announced was that um, visas will be available to casual travelers possibly as soon as the 1st of April. And I think that um, Saudi Arabia is sometimes seen as exceptional because it's one of the few places that casual travelers cannot visit. And it's, you know, it's off limits to travelers, but it's not somewhere that's at war. Um, so my question is, how how is opening of Saudi Arabia in terms of travel going to change it and will the visas actually go through and be available to casual travelers? Um, I think my question is more for Michael. Um, I guess I was wondering if there have been any changes to um, Saudi transnational missionary activity, um, especially like state-sponsored missionary activity. Uh, for Dr. Madawi and Dr. Stefan, um, how do you rate the viability of a system which was hitherto an aristocracy becoming fast becoming a sultanate? And indeed, what do you do with all these opinions? I mean, do you have a House of Lords situation where they all, you know, have have some some uh, opinion on policy? What do you do with all these uh, uh, f elites who've been disenfranchised? Well, on the visa, I mean, it, it's uh, been announced. Um, in the even during Abdullah's time that uh, Saudi Arabia is open for tourism, uh, but it, it hasn't actually happened um, so far. And uh, one of the uh, uh, ideas in Vision 2030 is to open up to Saudi Arabia to international tourism and also the Red Sea uh, resort projects and all that. But uh, it's very difficult to see how this is going to become a pattern and the visa uh, will come with it because obviously you can't go uh, as a tourist if, if uh, um, you can't get a visa without a sponsor in Saudi Arabia. So, so far it hasn't happened, but it is promised. Uh, I'll leave the transnational mission to um, uh, Mike, but uh, on the aristocracy and how the viability of the system um, um, the, the Saudi system was, um, since I would say the 19, late 1960s, and specifically under uh, King Faisal, it moved into a, like a centralized system. But when King Faisal, um, uh, after King Faisal, uh, and specifically under King Fahd, the Saudi state became a state of multiple fiefdoms. So each uh, uh, senior prince, and there were only like four or five, 
had their own fiefdom. So Naif was in control of the Ministry of Interior, uh, Sultan Ministry of Defense, Salman the governor of Riyadh, and the Al Faisal uh, group also had a, a, a control of the intellectual productions, etc. So that system um, has been changed, but not only because King Salman wanted it to change, it's because of demography, and quite a lot of those people died. And each one of them probably has got like at least 20 sons. So it's very difficult to incorporate all of them. Although, for example, in the recent shuffles um, with the ministry of, um, um, that Mohammed bin Salman did, um, he tries to compensate the Al-Nayef um, after sort of removing Muhammad bin Nayef. He put his uh, brother, one of the other brothers, into a, a senior position. And he, this is what I meant by dilemmas. They are not just simply challenges. They are dilemmas. What do you do with this uh, incredibly big uh, royal family? Uh, all of them are on government, uh, receive government salaries. And the salaries are, nobody knows how much. I don't know if uh, uh, Stefan could tell us about the budget for the salaries for these princes. Uh, but uh, it varies from one prince to another, depending on the proximity from the line of the founder of Saudi Arabia. And these, uh, we haven't heard that these are cut. They are still, they've been increased. So they have been increased. Uh, I think the only change was that they had to pay their electricity bills, but um, <laughs> which are incredible um, in a country like Saudi Arabia. So it is a dilemma what to do with this uh, uh, aristocracy that is very big. But some of them are actually very minor. I mean, in, for example, when the Western press takes the case of one very, very remote prince and says that he's become a dissident, <coughs> he really doesn't matter. Uh, and he's not important. So uh, those ones can become dissident. And uh, in fact, in my chapter um, uh, on the succession, um, um, I look into these kind of minor rumors that um, uh, this prince is now uh, disgruntled and he's left the country and he's set himself a YouTube channel and he keeps talking. But they are not important. So you could have hundreds of them outside Saudi Arabia and they really need to um, uh, appeal to others. Uh, and in fact, you know, I think the Saudi population is tired of, of this proliferation of privileged princes. Um, they are a burden on the government, uh, on, on the finance. Uh, but Mohammed bin Salman is, uh, has a dilemma. He can't just disenfranchise them, cut their salaries, and tell them to you know, just go and do whatever they like to do. And in fact, quite a lot of them can't do anything. Um, they just live in their palaces silently, living off um, government salaries that come every month. Privileges such as uh, tickets to travel abroad or uh, gifts from, the, from a, a, a senior prince are always good to have. Uh, donations of land, of uh, prime land in cities. This is the pattern that a Saudi monarch uh, used to deal with this pool of, of princes. But now, um, with funds becoming really difficult to, to come by, it's, it's, it's not sh I'm not sure how Hamad bin Salman will deal with, the, with this body of aristocracy. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, on, on tourism, I think uh, I think it'll happen because it's it's more a social decision than uh, you know a big economic technocratic challenge. I think it's not that difficult to issue them. He is, if you can do things like allowing women to drive or you know, essentially neutering the religious police, I don't think this would be such a drastic step. And there are uh, countries that are quite open to tourism that at the same time have very tight political control, even more so than Saudi Arabia. You know, if you look at the UAE, they they manage a thriving tourism economy quite successfully. Uh, while uh, you know, being very careful about who goes gets into the country and who doesn't, um, how quickly that un uh, that'll unfold is a different question. I mean, there's, there's certainly that there's a lot of natural beauty. You know, the, the Red Sea is, is fantastic. It's probably nicer on the Saudi than on the on the uh, Egyptian side. Uh, but you got to get all the infrastructure in place. You got to get the labor force in place. You got to make people trust the country. So I, I think there's there's considerable potential, but it'll probably take a while uh, to to unfold. One big question is: Is it going to be dry? Right. Because if it's dry, that you know, that uh, kind of removes two thirds of the potential tourism demand you could have. Uh, and uh, there are like dry Islamic resorts in Turkey and places like that, but the market is a lot smaller than you know, for the kind of more boozy tourism that you have in places like the Emirates. Um, I wouldn't put it beyond uh, MBS to uh, not not in the near future, but at some point say that there are, there are special zones, special rules. You know, people can drink. You know, there's a kind of cross-border zone where people can get drinks in Egypt, cross the uh, new bridge, then be in the kind of cloistered resorts on the Saudi side. I, th I think there could, be a, there could be a fix like that. It would be socially very problematic, but you know, that, uh, on social reforms, there have been very drastic changes uh, pushed through, and so I, I, I wouldn't rule that out. And that, that would make it more feasible in terms of a global audience. Um, uh, in terms of the aristocracy being removed, uh, it's very much the case. So it's, um, you know, it's a much more centralized, much more one-person regime. Of course, you know, if you look at European history, absolutism uh, was, was a force for modernization, right? So it's, it's uh, just because you've got a very high key man risk and a lot more depends on one person doesn't mean that there can't be modernization in other respects. Uh, I guess the big question is how much institution building that's going to be. You know, right now, the business class, I don't think, has an organized outlet to kind of reliably communicate uh, with the leadership. Uh, that the family, large parts of the ruling family feel... Uh, you know, fragmented, uh, neutered, alienated, which, by the way, you know, was a very popular thing to do. You know, when Mohammed bin Salman put a number of princes into the Ritz, that was you know, the best thing since bread came sliced for, for a lot of Saudis, you know, for understandable reasons. Uh, and uh, so I, th I think it's part of that kind of populist uh, strategy that you know, works well in some regards but creates risks in, in other regards. You, know, you had to get rid of some of those old elites. They really didn't contribute anything, both on the business side and in terms of the family. Uh, the... Mohammed bin Salman is rearing a new generation of princes systematically, but those will be his people. So it will be not a kind of system of uh, equals where you know, people balance each other. I think it will be much more directed by him. He's just deploying them across the state apparatus. Um, uh, the question is whether there will be institutional modernization below that. Will there be more of a corporatist system to deal with the business class systematically, to deal with kind of modern interests in society systematically, which you can do in an authoritarian system, you know, which happens in China or in Hong Kong or places like that. I don't see steps towards that very systematically uh, uh, right now. Uh, on, the, on the family allowances, I mean, it shows a sensitivity to uh, family politics that they were increased. Uh, and it was in, indeed in return for forcing them to pay all their bills. You know, there were very large unpaid bills. Um, and uh, obviously that wasn't publicized because it wouldn't have been particularly fop, uh, popular. Um, but I think you know, in terms of centralizing control in the family, fragmenting the family, keeping them sort of under control, not creating too much dissent, it, the strategy has been quite successful so far. Uh, I think he, I, I don't see the family allowances being abolished at any time soon. And 
they're a substantive chunk of the budget, but they're not as big as many other uh, items. So if, if I was MBS, I'd say, here's the item, we're gonna make it public. You know, that's just the, the, the privy purse, you know, that, as you have it in other countries. And people might be surprised that it's, you know, yeah, it's a couple of percent of the, of the budget, so it's, it's a huge chunk. You know, you could do a lot of stuff with it, but it's not the kind of fantasy figures that are being bandied around. Uh, so I, I don't think that's where kind of the, the, the main corruption or, or waste issue lies. Um, yeah, sorry. Respond just to the question on transnational missionary work, um, and I think much of this falls, unfortunately, into the the wait and see category. Um, but there are various things that you can say about it. I mean, this has always been uh, a complicated topic and a particularly opaque topic, um, partly because if we're speaking about transnational missionary work, then what do we mean by that? I mean, there's a whole array of channels that you can be speaking about. So whether you're speaking about religious publishing, um, whether you're speaking about education, whether you're speaking about flows of funds for um, Islamist movements or mosques or, or whatever, um, whether you're speaking about formal supranational uh, organizations like the Muslim World League um, and so on. So there's a whole array of different channels at stake um, and a whole array of different actors as well. So state actors, state funds being used for some of this. Um, but also private funds um, and also kind of semi-state actors, so kind of scholars close to the um, state who are, who are kind of making their own private donations. Um, so in all of these ways, it's a, it's a very opaque topic, and it's partly for that reason that um, there's limited, really high-quality research out there that can, that can tell us what kinds of changes are going on. Um, but the places where it's easiest to identify um, changes which are or are not happening is, is in the kind of formal realm, in the, the realm of formal institutions. Um, so with the Islamic University of Medina, for example, which has been the focus of some of, some of my own research, um, so this is an institution set up in the 1960s um, to provide um, religious education for male students from outside Saudi Arabia as a kind of missionary endeavor um, and, and on, a, on the basis of scholarships and, and this being fully funded as a kind of missionary endeavor. Um, and that, that was a project that was changing before the ascension of Salman, before the arrival of Mohammed bin Salman on the scene. Um, that institution was already beginning. It, it was opening faculties foc focusing on non-religious subjects for the first time. Um, it was showing signs of being kind of transitioned into something more like a quote-unquote kind of normal Saudi university um, in, so in some ways. Um, it's also been the case that um, with the Muslim World League, um, recently, at least at the rhetorical level, there have been signs, again, of a shift towards kind of a greater emphasis on tolerance and, and coexistence and so on. Um, so there are signs, again, at that rhetorical level, at least, of changes. Um, but one big question that hangs over much of this is, uh, if, if we take it back to the rhetoric of, of um, moderation and so on, one big question that hangs over much of this is, is what do you mean by that? Do you mean kind of politically moderate or socially moderate. So it's been the case for um, a long time, at least going back to the 1990s, that um, some of these missionary channels, um, partly as a response to Islamist threats to the regime, um, have been promoting forms of Salafism which are um, politically quietist, but socially are very exclusivist um, and, and sectarian. Um, the kind of the, the Merkali kind of brand of Salafism um, which flows through some of these channels. Um, and, uh, and it's certainly not clear that that is necessarily going away. I mean, there's, there's still ongoing media reporting in places like Algeria recently showing the kind of the influence of um, Saudi scholars, at least, over those kinds of networks um, abroad. Um, so that's definitely not something that has just that has just disappeared. Yeah. Wait, we have four minutes. Um, maybe it can be one very quick question because we have been on this for a bit. Yes, one more. Yeah. Um, 
thanks. Um, by the way, a quick comment on your uh, optimism with regard to international tourism. I really would be co extremely astonished if there were any sort of international tourism with this mindset. Yeah, sorry. I, mean, I just can't, couldn't help but pass that comment. Okay. Um, two questions, really. One is, how do you assess uh, Mohammed bin Salman, really? Is he for real? Is he, is he a, 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 a force to be reckoned with? Is he a crook? What, what's going on? I really would be very interested. Um, and secondly, you didn't mention Israel. I don't know whether that appears in your book, but there are realignments taking place which are highly significant for the region. Do you want to make a comment about that? Okay, I think there are two yeah, here, so we won't take any more. Well, on international tourism, I agree with you, Ghada. Uh, but I think what Mohammed bin Salman wants is to make uh, what they call religious tourism an all-year event. So it's not just the Hajj and Umrah, but to encourage more uh, foreign uh, tour tourists to come for religious purposes and also to lure Saudis into staying in Saudi Arabia and spending money on tourism inside Saudi Arabia. That is a potential. But, I mean, again, the weather is against him. And I think so far Saudis, who can afford to have holidays, they do not spare uh, a, a, a minute um, to leave the country. Um, and also, and also, the interesting thing is the Saudi regime, when he passes uh, long prison sentences on, on activists or intellectuals, so it will be like 15 years in prison, followed by 15-year ban on travel. So actually, being in the country is a punishment. Not being <laughs> able to leave the country is a punishment. So yes, that's on tourism. In terms of Israel, I do talk uh, in a chapter on foreign relations, on um, a deal, a kind of deal. I think what we sense as outsiders who have no access to internal intelligence information, that Mohammed bin Naif was promoted in Washington as the person to lead Saudi Arabia. He was given a medal by the CIA for fighting terrorism only a week before he was sacked in Saudi Arabia. And suddenly we get the promotion of Mohammed bin Salman. So um, Israel has got a lot to do with this. And there are, uh, I read two reports. One of them is written by a colleague, uh, Christian Ulrichsen, who wrote about the coming um, cooperation uh, in security and uh, economically between Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Israel. And in fact, in one article, I called Israel is the, you know, the, the, uh, has become a Sunni state from the perspective of Saudi Arabia because they see Israel as a good ally against Iran. So yes, and then the mild reaction of uh, the uh, of Mohammed bin Salman and King Salman about Jerusalem, uh, which was like you know oh yeah the Palestinians have a share in Jerusalem and that's all. Um, so yes, there is something going. There is a realignment, and um, Mohammed bin Salman is part of that. Oh, how do you assess him? Okay, so. <laughs> So tourism first. Um, so no, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, you know, perpetually bearish on Saudi Arabia, so it's just l trying to look for a potential uh, uh, bright spot on the e economy. Uh, I, I do think that the visas are going to happen. I do think that tourist infrastructure will be built. Whether all pieces fall into place you know, is, is difficult to tell, but I think in principle there, there would be potential. Um, on uh, MBS, I 
I, I don't think he's, he's a kleptocrat, you know, the way that uh, oil rich rulers in Equatorial Guinea or Gabon just you know, steal all the money, uh, take care of their family, otherwise don't care. I think he has genuine political ambitions, ambitions for the country. I think he's a nationalist, he's a populist. Uh, I don't think uh, he yet has the experience. I don't think he's always well advised, and I don't think he has the patience to you know, see through a lot of the reforms that the country would, would require. He certainly has authoritarian reflexes. You know, he's, he's, no, uh, he's no political modernizer. He's a social modernizer, and, and he wants to be an economic modernizer. And, and I think socially, it's pretty clear that this is happening. Economically, I think the jury uh, is, uh, is still out. Um, and on, on Israel, perhaps one, one interesting anecdote is that there were, in the run-up to uh, the uh, announcement that the embassy of the United States would be moved to Jerusalem, there were some op-eds in the Saudi press by um, intellectuals with uh, connections to, uh, to uh, the establishment who kind of toyed with the idea of, wh what about normalization? You know, we're on the same sheet in many regards. Uh, and that, I mean, the Saudi public came down very heavily on that. So those kind of trial balloons were shot down quite uh, systematically. So I don't think that normalization is going to happen anytime soon. I think, I think it's probably the long-term plan and that there's a clear strategic rationale from, from both sides. I do think that there are still uh, people who feel uh, Arab nationalist enough in su significant numbers in the, in the country that that's just too politically touchy. But I think it's, it's uh, where the strategy is going in the long term. <laughs> well, ju just to mention, um, also recently, a Saudi woman who posted a YouTube video against normalization, and she was put in prison. Well, on that cheery note, no. <laughs> uh, yeah. so um, anyway, thanks so much for coming, and thanks so much for our <laughs>